Fezzik, listen. Do you hear? That is the sound of ultimate suffering. Mad Max Minute, where the dreams that you wish turn out to be nightmares in Mad Max Fury Road, one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 82, which begins with the Vuvulini listing the myriad reasons that they have been in the green place, and it ends with Max sitting alone in the war rig. Good Monday morning, Julia. Happy Monday. It has been five weeks since we last recorded just the two of us. Yes, and it has. Therefore, I've had quite a lot of the You Are Awaited podcast to catch up on. I listened to five regular episodes and one guest episode in preparation for this recording so that I could bring up all of those interesting little tidbits that we missed on our pass, and yet Yuri and Travis were observant enough to notice when they were going through it. For instance, in episode 19, where they were talking about minutes 61 through 64, they supposed that Capable had heard the phrase Manifest Destiny from Joe because Manifest Destiny is the exact sort of thing that Immortan Joe would use to justify his warlording. Exactly. It invokes a sort of divine purpose. So yeah, that is exactly the kind of phrasing he would use. So putting it that way, it makes perfect sense that Capable would use that terminology. That's the lovely thing about Manifest Destiny is either the deity that you worship mandates that you must control the entire continent, or you as a self-fashioned god-king can just determine that you should rule everything, and you go forward with that. Yeah. (laughs) Moving on to episode 20, where they talked about minutes 65 through 68, turns out that Yuri and his wife Tara... They had a baby between episode 19 and 20, so I don't know how big of a gap that originally was because I just am downloading it three years after the fact. Three years isn't too late to offer congratulations, right? No. Nah, it's never too late. Congratulations, Yuri and Tyra. But more related to the movie at hand, although it's unrelated to the minutes they covered in that episode, they were talking about the wives washing themselves off in that original scene where they were revealed, and I don't know where they heard it. I think it was from one of their listeners contacted them and told them that in this post-apocalypse where the earth is so sour, that the dust that flies around is toxic. And it should make sense because we keep talking about the big sandstorm is a toxic storm. And so as you're walking around in the apocalypse, you're constantly getting blown on by this toxic dust and it causes your skin to burn. And so one of the reasons that the wives were hosing off is because they aren't used to being hit by all of this toxic dust, which they would be subjected to in the storm, even if they are hidden away. So they're like, oh, hey, why does everything feel like burning? And it goes back to that whole out here, everything hurts. You're not always going to be able to hose yourselves off to get that burning dust off your skin. For sure. And that does make me notice that most people in this movie are very, very covered up. Mm -hmm. It's just the wives who have been living in this filtered dystopian harem. I was going to say utopian, but it's not. (laughs) (laughs) 
wouldn't be dressed for the elements. Yeah. It also explains why the war boys are completely covered in that chalky paint stuff. Like slathering on extra heavy sunscreen, you're protecting your skin against all of the elements. It also explains why dragging Miss Giddy out of the dome would be an additional bit of torture. Moving on to episode 21, they had a nice little reminder that Nux calls Max blood bag when he's running the chain over to the tree because no one has any idea what Max's actual name is yet. They're still going on nicknames like fool and blood bag. And it's not something that I necessarily forgot, but it is something that I remember in hindsight being, oh yeah, that's right. He really doesn't know what Max's name is. So of course he would call him that. Yeah. Now, apparently... Between minutes 73 and 76 in episode 22, that's the scene where Max comes back and he's got the head wound, or at least he has the blood on his head. Apparently in the next shot, he has a head wound. I didn't go back and check it. I probably should have, but it would definitely make sense if he's blowing things up and then chopping at people with a knife that he'd get at least a little bit of cut and then Furiosa would say something like that's not his blood to just belay the fears of the wives maybe Make i don't sound know a bit more tough. i don't like that i thought it was more poignant when he didn't have an injury and it really wasn't his blood yeah like i said i didn't go back and check i probably should have i had a lot of prep to do for these episodes this week <laughs> but more importantly i think when they got to episode 23, they were talking about Furiosa meeting up with the Vuvulini. And that move that Furiosa and the Valkyrie do, turns out it is a thing. I know when we talked about it initially, I was like, I don't know if that's a thing. Well, it is a thing. It is called a Hongi, and I really hope I'm pronouncing that right, because it is a Maori tradition. And it's performed by two people pressing their noses together. Some include at the time the touching of foreheads, and the greeting is used at traditional meetings among the Maori people and at major ceremonies, and it can be followed by a handshake. The idea is that you are exchanging the breath of life with the other person as a symbolic show of unity. It comes from Maori mythology, where woman was created by the gods molding her shape out of the earth, and then the god Tane embraced the figure and breathed into her nostrils. She then sneezed and came to life, creating the first woman in Maori legends. That reminds me of, I believe it's Japanese mythology. Is it Japanese? I think, I'm pretty sure it's Japanese mythology, where the first gods and demigods came from, like, the sneezes and snot of the original god. Okay. Mm-hmm. Something like that. It's, it's very vague in my memory. Hmm. Now, I mentioned that I was listening to regular episodes and then a guest episode. The guest episode I listened to was the one where they talked to Mark, Mark Sexton. And he had a couple of things to say because they were further along in the movie. Stuff that he didn't talk to us about because we just weren't ready to be talking about that point. For instance, he mentions the bog walkers. Mm-hmm. And he pointed out that they are not just men. They are men and women. They are the combined group of both genders of people who refuse to leave the green place behind. That makes perfect sense. If a society needs to leave for some reason, chances are there are going to be people who refuse. And that's not gendered. Both men and women can be that stubborn or tied to their location and tradition. So it makes perfect sense that it is both men and women. And then they got talking about where Furiosa was mentioning, oh, she's done this many times and she's looking for redemption and things like that. Turns out the whole 
Furiosa Redemption thing is very much related to her time serving the Immortan. Mark pretty much confirmed that on You Are Awaited, so I feel very justified by that. Well, I mean, that's a pretty safe assumption. And he mentioned that Max asking how many times she's done this and Furiosa saying many times that that is an idea for the Furiosa spinoff movie. Okay. Okay. So maybe she has attempted prior to and has never gotten far enough to actually act on it Mm -hmm. before being foiled in some way. He also said that they wanted to do a comic showing Furiosa doing the deal with the Rock Riders, but they ran out of time to do it. Oh, that's a shame. So... The Furiosa comic could have been two issues, but they only got one out. But that's what I got from this latest round, listening to six episodes of the You Are Awaited podcast. So we're all caught up now and catching up with Furiosa surrounded by the Vuvulini, who are listing off the different reasons that they had to leave the green place. They started last week talking about how they had to get out, how there was no water. And they continue saying that what water was there was filth. It was poisoned. It was sour. The crows came. They couldn't grow anything. And then Toast fires up with, well, what about the others? They sound a bit defensive, like they have to make their case. They have to justify to Furiosa why they left. When in reality, I don't think they do. Yes, this change is dramatic and it dramatically affects Furiosa, as we'll talk about in a few minutes. But... They don't have to justify their reasons for leaving to Furiosa. I think they're so defensive because of the others. There are people that chose to leave behind and the Vuvulini had to turn their backs on those people and they had to justify to themselves abandoning part of their tribe. Yeah, I think they're maybe harboring some guilt about that, do you think? I don't think they should. Those people made their own choice and... We have seen how they live. Mm -hmm. We've gotten a little peek into how they live. Is it really better or worse than the Vuvalini? That's hard to say. One thing I forgot to mention about listening to the You Are Awaited podcast, they expanded on that idea of the different tribes in the wasteland evolving based on the environments that they live in. I know we brought up the idea of vehicles evolving to work against the specific enemies that a group has. But in looking at the bog walkers, they also pointed out that the different peoples of the wasteland are adapting to their individual environments, like the rock riders adapted by getting on the motorcycles, the bog walkers adapted by getting on stilts, the Vuvalini adapted by moving around in the sand and setting up people traps and things like that. And so in response to Toast's question about the others, One of the Vuvulini, I'm not quite sure, they ask, well, what others? And then Toast says, well, the many mothers. And the Vuvulini flat out say that they are the only ones left. Something about the sound editing here is that Furiosa herself, and the camera is following Furiosa, more importantly, the focus is following Furiosa. She is mentally and physically, but especially mentally, walking away leaving this conversation behind. So the voices start to feel distant and a little echoey. Mm -hmm. The people go out of focus. She is separating herself from this environment. And in prep, I found it very interesting that if you don't look at the minute at all, if you just listen, you still know exactly what's going on. The sound editing 
specifically in this minute between the voices and the effects on them and the music tell you exactly what's happening. And it's made very, very clear. It's done so well. This title of The Many Mothers, this kind of sounds like the ruling class. Mm -hmm. Back when Furiosa was introducing herself, she basically had two mothers. She had an initiate mother and a birth mother. So I'm guessing that the initiate mother was a member of the ruling class, the many mothers, and that this group of women that we see are the remnants of the many mothers. I like that idea. I also like the idea, going back to what Mark said in that episode of You Are Awaited, that the bog walkers are both men and women, that these different classes of people maybe rebelled against the ruling class a little bit. The ruling class wanted to leave and the working class maybe didn't. So we had supposed a little while ago when we started talking about the Vuvulini and the, the green place that perhaps this was a, you know, a commune that separated themselves from society so that they could live in a specific way. Mm, kind of starting like it didn't really go so well. I forget where I heard this, but I think the Vuvulini are supposed to represent the opposite of Immortan Joe and the Triumvirate, where neither Joe nor the Vuvulini have it all 100% correct. Joe's got his patriarchal system, and he swung really hard that way, and the Vuvulini have their matriarchal system, and they swung really hard that way, and it's only by meeting in the middle that people are able to succeed and i think that comes from a youtube video that i want to talk about later on in the season okay i'm actually glad that you brought that up because the vuvulini kind of drive me a little nuts because this movie is touted as you know uh, being feminist giving women a voice declaring their independence and their humanity and taking control of their destiny but then we have this group of people who went to this feminist extreme in the other direction and that's that's not feminism feminism is equality their society wasn't equal either they're just as bad as all of our patriarchal societies that we have today any society that deems one gender above the other is wrong so yeah the vulvalini are just as bad as a morton joe like a mirror exactly now, while we're still listening to all of these voices, I think this is the best time to get to know another one of our Vuvulini. So this next one that I want to talk about is Joy Smithers. As we're looking at minute 82, right at the top, second zero, the face on the far right next to the Valkyrie. She's standing right in front of the tower. That's Joy Smithers. She is best known, according to IMDb, for... Her role in this movie, Mad Max Fury Road, she was in 2008's Newcastle. She was on the show All Saints between 1999 and 2003. And she was in a 1985 comedy called Emo Ruo, which is the words Our Home spelt backwards. I wasn't quite sure how to say it. I did my best. What can I say? Joyce Smithers was born July 15, 1963 in Sydney, New South Wales, Australia. In a 2015 interview with the Daily Telegraph, Smithers told interviewer Jonathan Moran of the Courier Mail that she was offered the role of Jesse in the first Mad Max film when she was only 15. She says, I quote, 
My parents said no, Smithers recalled. They just thought I might get run over. From a normal working class family who doesn't have a lot to do with the entertainment industry, they just thought it was a lot of rubbish. My father apologized to me on my mother's deathbed for not assisting, end quote. As we know, the role went to then 21-year-old Joanne Samuel. 15 is awfully young to be playing Jesse. Yeah. I dare say too young. I cannot imagine a 15-year-old playing opposite a 23-year-old as a romantic lead. It just does not make sense to me, no matter how old you look. Just the idea of casting a 15-year-old actress just seems like a bad idea. And it's probably a good idea that Joy Smithers' parents were like, no, you're not going to do that. Not at 15. Not to play a wife and mother. Now, that being said, Smithers did go on to land her first credited role at 19 in the movie Heat Wave, which will sound familiar from when we were talking about Jillian Jones. She followed that up with the role of Lena in Lorca and the Outlaws in 1984, which also starred Mad Max alumni Hugh Keysburn and soon-to-be alumni Rod Zuanick, who is mentioned a lot in the last couple of episodes, just running into these women left and right, apparently. Though Smithers continued acting on television and in movies through the 1980s, she was also a television presenter on MTV Australia alongside Richard Wilkins. It was during that time that Smithers was cast alongside Nicole Kidman in the Kennedy Miller Productions miniseries Bangkok Hilton. Smithers has worked consistently over the course of her career, accumulating 38 credits on her IMDb page. I love seeing the Mad Max alum just crossing over all over the place. Well, there is that running joke that all Australian actors just know each other. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if you ran into Margot Robbie just randomly in a store. You could ask her, oh, what's Hugh Jackman like? (laughs) I'm not sure that Hollywood Australian actors count. Spending too much time over here in America? Yeah, I kind of think so. (laughs) I don't think they count. So getting back into the minute, something stood out to me about this. We've spent some time this minute zooming in on Furiosa as she's listening to everybody. And she walks away from the group. They fall out of focus. And what stands out to me as interesting in this minute is that no one follows her. They give her space. I think it's symbolic of her separation. The rest of this minute is going to be spent with Furiosa in isolation. And the first step is to remove her from the group of people. And it's almost like they go on with their conversation and don't even notice that Furiosa is gone or was ever there. She's just automatically separate from them instantaneously. Do they even turn to look at her as she walks away? In second 23. Okay. They all turn to look because they notice that she's zombie walking off towards the dunes. And even Max, we get a cutaway to him sitting in the war rig. He's just watching her walk away off towards the sunset, shedding her mechanical arm as she goes. And the music does this fantastic thing where it gets a bit stilted and then stops for a few moments as she is finalizing her isolation, her walking away from them. And as the camera finishes doing it, letting everybody fall out of focus and just focusing on her for a moment before we switch angles. And then it comes back in to really drive home her despair and her anger. So why do you think she removes the mechanical arm? I've been thinking about this. And I think it's something that is additional, something that is cumbersome 
something that's not naturally there. It's also something that came from this world of man. Yeah, something artificial. Yes. Not natural, which is exactly what you just said. And I think that she just wants to be rid of it all. She walks away from people and she walks out into the desert. I think it once again, along with the music and the focus, derives home her isolation. Mm. I can see her not wanting to bear that weight because that arm is pretty big. It's got to be pretty heavy. Yeah. And she is so bound up in the mechanics of that arm. I mean, it's got three belts around her entire torso. Can you imagine how constricting that is and the need to be free? Do you notice as soon as she drops off that arm, her gait has been drifting off to the left as she's been undoing it and letting it drag. And as soon as the arm lets off, she takes a few steps to the right as if she's correcting her balance. Like suddenly her left side is a lot lighter and Mm -hmm. she has to adjust her walking. Yeah, with and without that arm that is very heavy, I would assume, her center of gravity is different. I also like the idea of, I think it's foreshadowing what's going to happen in the upcoming minutes. We don't hit on it this week, but when we visit Furiosa again in a few minutes, she has course corrected. She has dealt with it and has a new plan. Hmm. She doesn't wallow in her despair. She moves on. She has her moment. So I think we are seeing that, yes, she is faltering from her path, but she's going to course correct. I think she has a lot of reason to be upset, though. Oh, absolutely. Her entire worldview is crushed. I made a list of all of the different ways that this revelation has thrown a wrench in Furiosa's works. First and foremost... I think Furiosa is upset because she is suddenly realizing that she can never go home. She can never return to the place where she was taken from. I mean, that's a saying for a reason. You can't ever go home. People change and move on and returning to your hometown, which essentially is what she's doing. It's never the same. Yeah, it's never the same emotionally, but like physically speaking... It's like her hometown was blown up and no longer exists. It's like this is the first time that we've seen a group of people traveling through the wasteland towards a specific destination. In Road Warrior, it was the Sunshine Coast. In Beyond Thunderdome, it was Tomorrow Morrowland. And even in Beyond Thunderdome, sure, Sydney was a bombed out husk, but it was still the place that the kids wanted to go to and they made the most of it and they breathe a new life into the city. Sure, there was some shenanigans that we didn't think about with the buzzards until we got to this movie, but (laughs) this is the first time we've seen someone arrive at their destination and be told, yeah, it ain't here no more. It's very true. I think having a hometown is something that, especially in American culture, it's an identifier of who you are. And many, many people feel a certain attachment to their hometown. Mm -hmm. I know I certainly do. I haven't been there in years, but I'll defend it. Yeah. And I still love it. So that hometown is gone, literally gone. Although I would argue that her hometown isn't gone. It has just changed beyond recognition. The location still exists. It's just no longer a green place. That's a 
it's now a bog. That's true. It's not like it fell into a sinkhole. It's not like her home was Sydney Harbor and now it's just Sydney Canyon. But the, well, I would argue that still exists, too. But still. It's, it's just changed beyond recognition. Yeah. Furiosa can't go home. So she's got that emotionally It's not like going with. home to Alderaan. Right. <laughs> that location physically no longer exists. Okay. That might be the best metaphor that I didn't come up with. There we go. <laughs> now, a second thing that could be very upsetting for Furiosa is the fact that she sold the wives on this idea of the green place. She told them about this land flowing with milk and honey sort of situation, and they begged her to take them away from the citadel to this better place. And it turned out that the better place didn't exist. That's a huge responsibility on Furiosa's shoulders. Yeah. And the price that was paid was enormous. It was incalculable. And it's all for naught. Well, all for naught is a strong term because they're still no longer captives of Joe's. That's true. But delivering the wives to the green place was going to be her redemption. That was going to be the thing that wipes the slate clean morally for all the bad things she did as an Imperator. And that's another point that I have in my list of things that she could be really upset with. But she no longer has that moment to point to and be like, yes, that was the thing that made me a good person again. I don't recall when we were talking about Furiosa saying about her redemption. Did we draw comparisons between her and Black Widow? No. Because Black Widow says repeatedly that she has red in her ledger and she's trying to wipe it out. And that is a huge motivation for Black Widow through all the Marvel movies that she appears in. For the reason why she's doing good things, the reason why she's an Avenger, is trying to redeem herself for all the bad things she did. And it's been long enough. Yeah, if you want to spoil Endgame, it's <laughs> been pretty much half a year. Right, so I feel okay about that. To the point where she sacrifices her life for that red in her ledger. With no possibility of coming back. Knowing that. Even knowing that they are messing with time and they're trying to bring people back to life, even knowing that, she still knows this one is permanent. And she does it anyways. She fights to do it. And the lengths that she goes to to redeem herself. I find her very comparable to Furiosa. Yeah. Speaking of sacrifice, the last thing on my list, not that it's the least thing on my list, but the last thing that I'm sure Furiosa is very upset about is the fact that Angherit died in this process. She started off with five wives. She's down to four. I like the phrasing in your notes saying that it invalidates Angherit's sacrifice. Because, yeah, they're no longer captives, but to what end? Yeah. Things just look really bleak right now. And it's hard to say what was worth it and what wasn't. Mm-hmm. Especially because they lost not only Herod, but they lost her baby, too. She was a two-for-one. I think maybe losing Herod is maybe the worst one of these for Furiosa. With all of those thoughts in mind, it really bothers me when people use this scene as part of, like, a sarcastic meme or something like that. I'm like, 
This is an incredibly emotional part of the movie with a lot of weight behind it. And when someone uses it as a screenshot in a meme that's supposed to be like, oh, ha ha ha, ladies, be emotional. And I'm like, screw you. Don't be cheapening it with your bad jokes. That's definitely a downside to meme culture that I think a lot of times moments from media get cheapened. And yeah, this is definitely one of them. I think this moment and analyzing what it means to Furiosa and how that translates to other examples in media and to our own lives, I think it's really important. It's easy to look at movies and go, oh, they're just entertainment. But it's moments like these that drive home the point that movies aren't just entertainment. They mean something. They're an exploration of the human condition in extraordinary situations. Yes. If I've said this once, I've probably said it multiple times, but if comedy was easy, everybody would do it. It takes real craftsmanship to put an effective joke together, which is why sometimes I look at a meme and I'm like, "Ooh, that's lazy. Yeah. It's not funny. But that's <laughs> just me criticizing the internet in general, really. Yeah. Your memes are trash. Just like your waifu. <laughs> Talk about cheap jokes. <laughs> you know what isn't cheap, though? The shot that we get right around the 55-second mark of Furiosa sitting on the edge of that dune, and you've got the sunset over off to the right side of the shot, and it's just a gorgeous frame. It really is, and I know we keep repeating ourselves on the cinematography and the editing, but oh my gosh, it just keeps needing to be brought up that it's just amazing and it's breathtaking. And it's amazing to look at this shot in response to the image of Furiosa falling to her knees and screaming at the universe that she's sitting there all alone in the middle of the desert and that bright spot in her life is going down behind the dunes. It is going away. This isn't a sunrise with hope coming into the world. This is a sunset with her dreams and aspirations and goals going away. And so she is going to have to recenter herself. She is. And it's not till after the sun goes down until those dreams and aspirations are gone and she makes some kind of peace with that that she course corrects mm -hmm. comes up with another plan in a few minutes time but it's not till it's dark out right so in the last second of this minute we cut back to max and he is sitting in the war rig just watching this situation and because the first couple of seconds of wednesday are a continuation of this shot we're probably just going to talk about him sitting in the war rig at the top of Wednesday's minute. Does that sound cool? Yeah, sounds good. So let's put a pin in this. We'll hold off. When we come back on Wednesday, we'll see Toast and Cheeto doing some stargazing. Joy will take a jab at the entertainment industry. And the dag will talk to the keeper of the seeds about her baby. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. 
Our home on the internet is madmaxminute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at madmaxminute, like us on Facebook by searching for Mad Max Minute, and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit madmaxminute.com, where you can see what's in our Tee Public store, join our Patreon, or even donate to the show to help us keep the tanks full. Thank you for joining us for Minute 82 of Fury Road. We'll see you next time.